0: Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowlis. Hoy me acompaña la doctora Regina Mills. Mills is an assistant professor of Latinx and U.S. multi-ethnic literature in the Department of English at Texas A&M University. Her first monograph, *Invisibility and Influence: A Literary History of Afro-Latinidades*, comes out this year, the summer of 2024. She is the daughter of a Guatemalan immigrant and the eldest of seven children. Bienvenida a este episodio, Regina. Muchísimas gracias, Elena. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, Regina, talk to us a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern Virginia, in the DC
1: area. As you said, the oldest of seven siblings. Um, I was born in Arlington, Virginia, but I kind of we moved around a lot. So I grew up in cities like Fairfax, Manassas Park, Manassas, and Warrenton. Um, and then after, you know, after. Growing up in Northern Virginia, I moved out west to college, first to Arizona and then to Texas, and I've actually been in Texas for over a decade now, which is a
0: decade more than I ever thought that would be. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, Your mother is Guatemalteca, right? Yes. Yes. Did you grow up with this heritage? What do you remember about growing up? Yes. Yeah, so my mother came to the
1: U.S. to kind of reside permanently, um, though she didn't actually know it at the time. It's kind of a crazy story, um, but in 1984 she came to visit her um, her her father who had been who'd been here for a few years at that point, point. Um, and then she just he, he didn't send her back. Um, and this was during one of the most violent periods of the Guatemalan armed conflict, yeah. which was a civil war kind of between the Guatemalan government right with the support of the US, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, which was authoritarian, but kind of nominally capitalist, Mm -hmm. really more of an oligarchy. Um, and kind of had all these, you know, reformists, armed revolutionaries, guerrilla warfare. And so it's a period called known as La Violencia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, and, and of course, this is not something I knew about <laughs> until I got to right. graduate school when I started learning about, um, Central American history and kind of understanding a little bit more about where my mom came from. Cause my mom didn't talk about it like at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in fact, many Guatemalan Americans grow up with this silence around their parents' lives kind of before coming to the U.S. And so it was something that like I kind of learned about, um, really not until my 20s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so while a lot of people know that Los Angeles and Houston were these major hubs for- American migration during the Civil War period, um, Washington, D.C. was also a major destination city. Um, And so when I was a baby, there was a little Guatemalan enclave um, that helped support my mom and my dad. Mm. Um, My parents were high schoolers when they had me in 1987. Um, They were seniors in high school. Um, And actually, my dad's father disowned him for marrying a woman of color. Mm. So my mother's family and friends were the ones who most supported us, right, in those earlier years. And so I had a lot of, like, support from this kind of Guatemalan enclave. Um, but at the same time, I've had a really complicated relationship with, with being Guatemalan. Um, right. I know that I've been told that I spoke English and Spanish um, in before school started, but basically, once I started school, what I remember is speaking English most of my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, my mom was bilingual in Spanish and English. Um, as my as was my abuelo, we call him Poppy. So if I say Poppy, that's that's who I mean, my abuelo. Mm-hmm. Um, but my abuelita, she still only speaks Spanish. Um, and so, you know, I grew up. I loved like my abuelita's cooking, Um, but she lived in Guatemala still, and she still lives in Guatemala, my abuelita, Um, so I didn't really get to see her much, and even then, I kind of struggled to communicate with her for a long time, Um, and in addition, like, I'm really light-skinned and can easily pass for white, and so I think sometimes there was an incentive for my family to kind of raise me as American, right, Um, meaning kind of they thought speaking English first and not necessarily kind of seeing ourselves as part of a Latino community, right, or in solidarity with other Latinos. Um, which doesn't mean I didn't feel Guatemalan, but it was very much felt like it was kind of individual, you know? Um, and a lot of times based on material culture. So a lot of times it was like, I loved worry dolls. I don't know if people, okay. people use worry dolls much, but I loved using worry dolls under my pillow. Um, My mom, like, oh my gosh, my mom and I, I actually have an article coming out about um, earrings and and (laughs) femininity and Guatemalan-American femininity because we had Mm -hmm. all these fights about me wearing earrings and dresses like just like a good Guatemalan girl. Right, a little girl. (laughs) Yeah, a little girl, exactly, right? Um, And so my mom was kind of trying to balance, I think, passing along her culture with her ideas of what American success entailed for Mm -hmm. a girl, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think she ever sought to hide our Guatemalan-ness. For example, I had a quinceañera, all my sisters, have quinceañeras. They're not as elaborate as Mm -hmm. many other young women might have had, but we did have them. And then when I got to college, that was really when I started to kind of reclaim Spanish. And I've been working for the last several years to really like do do that, um, and I'm actually really proud that this summer I actually went to Spain, so I could go to a conference and I spoke Spanish the whole time. Oh, and I'm sure they thought my Mexican. <laughs> I know, right. and I'm sure they thought my Spanish was like really more like Mexican because at this point living in Texas and right. doing the practice, like you know, it's like gotten more Mexican for sure. But I don't know. It's been, it's been quite a journey. I mean, I don't know it's kind of a long answer to your question, but that's kind of the right the complicatedness that comes absolutely with you especially know. <laughs> with uh,
0: Central America history. Right? Um, I have a similar um, background, uh, my mom, my parents are Salvadoran and we didn't move to the U S until later, but so we moved to Mexico and that history, right. Um, I didn't know until I was in my twenties and in college that I am, that I came to know more about this, um, El Salvador, you know, civil war and, um, and then why they moved to where they moved and, and they, and, and their own way, um, um, kept us, you know, from that um, history, um, which in the US maybe you didn't have to like um, pretend you were in Guatemalan, right? Um, but um in Mexico, uh, my mom did, right? And my parents did. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and so so similar, you know, to that. And
1: so yeah. Yeah, things- no, it's definitely a very interesting Story just because like you said it was she didn't really know because she was a teenager right too so mm-hmm. it's like she kind of knew she knew what was going on but kind of didn't know why she was kind of being left behind and I think there's still questions about that too but but as, as you say like I think there's a lot too of the story of like not really rec- recognizing what mm-hmm. Central American is is or why that history is until much later in life, which I think not all other Latino immigrants have
0: that story. Exactly. You know, so. exactly. Uh, so Regina, I know that you are interested in video games and are working on an edited collection of, on Latinx video gaming. How did this come about?
1: Uh, If anybody, whenever, I think it doesn't take very long for when someone to meet me to like, know that I love (laughs) video games. I I grew up loving them. I've been playing them for as long as I can remember. I'm still a huge video game geek. I have a retro gaming room in my house, which is like the pride and joy of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I actually wanted to study video games in graduate school. Um, But it was really clear to me that that wasn't really viable um, where I was. And I think also just like at many schools, it's not as viable. Mm -hmm. So um, as I began thinking about a second book project, right, which is something you do when you're on the tenure track, right, is you guess you're working on your first book project. But a lot of times, especially at like a research university, right, like like Texas A&M is, Mm -hmm. they want you to really start thinking about that early. And so I kind of started kind of toying around with the idea. Um, And then I worked as a guest co-editor with – Uh, Trent Masiki, um, who's at um, WPI, for an issue of the Black Scholar, and it was on Postal Afro-Latinidades, which was related a lot more to his approach of Afro-Latino um, like Afro-Latino studies. Mm-hmm. And I had just talking about him, I'm like, I don't know what to, incur- to put in here because I'm just like, this isn't my exact like sh- approach, but I'm really interested in it and thinking about, um, you know, how post-soul blackness and Afro-Latino that can be connected. And I was like, you know what? I really love Miles Morales. And, and, I, and Trent encouraged me. He was like, you know what? Like, write about Miles Morales.
0: Mm-hmm. And Miles
1: Morales is this Afro-Puerto Rican Spider-Man. Um, and, and I'm sure as you know, as many people know, right? He has this Oscar winning animated film that came out. And in 2020, when I was talking to Trent, that's when a video game focused entirely on Miles Morales came out. Um, and so um, the project kind of brought together, right, writing this article brought together aspects of my first book, which is on Afro-Latino, Latina and Latinx life writing, um, as well with game studies work that I had been wanting to do. And I had been kind of toying with because I'd been publishing other stuff on game like games and pedagogy mm-hmm. before this. So then I wrote a post-Soul Spider-Man, um, the remix heroics of Miles Morales, which I really kind of see as this bridge between that first book that I'm I'll probably, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about in a second and the work on Latinx games. Right. Um, and I met Carlos Kelly, who I know you just uh, interviewed yes. <laughs> not that long ago. I listened. To, it was a fantastic um, episode. It was fun to hear his side of like how he remembers us working on this um, edited mm-hmm, collection because mm-hmm. I was thinking of it, too, and I was. I wonder exactly how it started. So, um, And he was, you know, at the time, I actually met him kind of virtually at, um, when he was working on his dissertation on Latinx masculinity in games um, through Frederick Luis Aldama, who we talked about. I think you guys called him the Latinx Moses, I believe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I kind of just um, cold, I kind of just cold emailed Frederick Luis Aldama one day, which is not very like me. I get super nervous about mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I was trying to kind of find anyone who was working at the intersection of Latinx and game studies. And like I had seen his work, he had written some, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember which, which, which um, thing it was on. I think Latino Narrative Media was the name of the, was the book. And he had written this thing on games. And I was like, well, maybe, you know, he or somebody, he knows somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, Betty was so generous, as he always is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he connected me and Carlos. And, and it took a couple years before we really started working together, right? And honestly, I can't remember the exact moment when we really started doing these collaborations. But I think, as he put it, like the Latinx Critical Creative Consortium at Texas a and last year is where we kind of, like, toyed with the idea of, like, mm-hmm. hey, let's put this collection together, um, and then, you know, Fetty was, like, super open to it, and I, you know, I had kind of thought of it as just, like, a random idea that we we had kind of had and, and, and talked about, and he was like, no, you should do it, and so we were like, yeah, we should do it, right, so, um, and Carlos's new book is amazing, and he was just the perfect person to do this work with as we were both kind of really interested in thinking about what Latinx Game Studies, like, encompasses like mm-hmm. trying to kind of put together a definition based on what's happening right now in the field so I'm really excited about that like um, as, as he said we have contribution stuff we're already looking over and I'm just I'm, I'm really excited to kind of see what the
0: field looks like based off of what
1: we were able to get people to write about it.
0: I'm excited. I'm excited about that work as well. But I do want to talk to you about your upcoming book. And it's kind of, you know, uh, you say um, when you work at an R1 institution, you're like you have your book one, but you're supposed to be mm, thinking about book two at the same time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think we have to like focus on that first lovely book that you have coming out. Uh, this summer. Um, and the title is Invisibility and Influence A Literary History of Afro Latinidades. And I saw the book cover and I love it. Um, Thank so, you. I love it too. Mm-hmm, it's is, is beautiful. Uh, so, felicidades. This, we need to celebrate that, right? Uh, talk to us about your interest in Afro Latinx writers in the United States.
1: No, I really appreciate you doing that too because it's kind of because I feel like, you know, you're always, I don't know, you're always getting pushed, right? To do the next thing, think mm-hmm. of the next thing, do the next thing and it's just like there's not always you kind of feel like you you shouldn't be taking time to celebrate and do this stuff and and you know it's really like you know, honestly, like it was kind of hard for me to even take in that I had actually finished this book <laughs> and that it was going to get published. And, um, and I didn't actually really take it seriously until I got the proofs and I saw the acknowledgments page. I just like started crying, <laughs> you know, because it's just it's overwhelming, yes, you know, and absolutely. it's like it's all this work and people want you to start thinking of the next thing. But at the same time, like I put all this work right mm-hmm. seven years, right? I my dissertation that I started in 2016 becoming this beautiful book, which is just this cover that is exactly the cover that I wanted um and I just you know June 2024 can't come fast enough because I just want to (laughs) like hold my book and hug it (laughs) you know um and so I kind of talk about this in my introduction a little bit but I'm going to add some stuff that I didn't really include in the introduction just because you know why not right put that Mm -hmm. extra 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 material out there um but my original plan was actually to write a dissertation about U.S. Central American literature right because after learning about my mom and this history and I just felt like there are so many things that like made that made more sense now that you always kind of feel right um, and then my mom died really suddenly. She hadn't really been sick. She just died of an aneurysm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2015, right before I was supposed to start my dissertation. And I honestly just couldn't do the project anymore. Like I honestly really struggled to read any more of the materials that was there and to think about these things and to think about like, did this, did this background, this history, did it affect my mom's health? Did it affect mm-hmm. like the life that she had had? Right. Cause she was 45. She was very young. Right. Um, and I had been so I've been doing the work of reading every novel I could by U.S. Central American writers, every novel, every memoir, everything I could find, because at the time it was limited. It's getting less limited. Right. We have like Javier Zamora Solito and mm-hmm. other important works that are coming on. But it's, you know, for a time you could read most of the stuff in English to, that, that was available. Right. Like you, you actually could. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you still can. I don't know. Um, And I was doing that, and then I read Veronica Chambers' Mama's Girl, right, which is um, a memoir from the perspective of a Panamanian American, like a Black Panamanian American girl, Mm -hmm. right, thinking through her relationship with her mother. Um, Her father's background is kind of confusing. He's either Dominican or Costa Rican Jamaican, but, you know, depending on the source. But but the main focus is really on her Panamanian mother and that relationship. Mm -hmm. I'd also just taken a class recently on Central American literature where I had read works by Black Central American writers. Um, and it has just kind of made me realize and think about how I never thought of blackness existing in Central America. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I tried to mention it to family and other Central Americans, they kind of often would shrug it off. Like there was no black communities there. Um, even though, as we know, the Garifuna and Guatemala right. have existed there for a long time. And, and that's not the only right, Central American communities that exist. And it just made me think about how Central Americanness had been imagined right through anti blackness and black erasure, which I know is something that like Marisa Cardenas, Cardenas also talks about, um, but, you know, kind of in addition to what I'd always known about, which was the anti-Indigeneity, right, that's so mm-hmm. central to Central Americanness as well. Um, and before I knew it, I kind of just wanted to get my hands on all the Afro-Latinx writers I could, right? And just like, I just was really interested in thinking about how Afro-Latinx writers kind of write against this attempt to deny their existence mm-hmm. and, to, and erase them, Right. And, um, and so, I, and then when I did that, I also noticed how much of that writing was biographical, autobiographical, mm-hmm. right? Or kind of the more capacious and kind of feminist term that gets used, life writing, right? Like writing life narratives. And so I kind of wondered, like, why so much life writing by Afro-Latinx is, right? And and how had that life writing been writing against this erasure in the U.S., Latin America, and the Caribbean? And so those kind of questions just, like, really drove me to kind of end up just doing the entire dissertation and the entire book, right, on Afro-Latinx life writing over a century.
0: Right, right. And that, um, it makes me think of those um, narratives, I guess, Um also by uh, Afro-American writers. Initially, yeah, but this was maybe more decades ago. Maybe we do have Afro Latinx writers that were writing about this at the same time. But I remember studying those um, types of uh, memoirs, life stories, or life histories, right, from Afro -Afro American writers. And now you are, you know, encountering or we're encountering more of that writing from Afro Latinx writers. Um, And so I don't know Mm -hmm. if the dates. coincide with Afro-American writers versus Afro-Latinx writers, but, um, you know, something to to think about. So you include some of my favorite Latinx, Afro-Latinx writers, such as P.D. Thomas and Ariana Brown, but your work also looks at Afro-Latinx spirituality, politics, and self-identity, which I am sure these writers explore in their texts. Um, I know that Ariana Brown, is, it does that um, very, very um, unapologetically. Um, can you talk to us about some of your findings? Yeah,
1: so I, you know, I guess what I find, which I don't think is surprising, and, and one of the major things that I, you know kind of drove me was to think about how what afro-latinidad means or encompasses mm-hmm. has been really fluid and dynamic right for at least a century and as you were mentioning kind of like a lot of this also is kind of because it's in relationship and give and take with like afro-american right like black american mm-hmm. um and u.s latinx ideas right about life writing and life narrative mm-hmm. um that are there that they're kind of having to respond to and think about and you know reject or kind of you know, feel, feel right, feel and, and see how it fits for them. Um, and the thing is too, is that like, when I think about like the findings from my book too, is I was really worried about my book coming across as kind of a, kind of a, a yet another kind of discovery narrative, right? Mm-hmm. This narrative where someone claims they have discovered all these writers or discovered right. that there's an Afro-Latinx literary tradition, which is not true. Like this, this has been there for a long time, mm-hmm. right? Um, what I really wanted to get across is that Afro-Latinx communities have been here they have been influential and innovative, right, in a lot of fields. Mm-hmm so it's not just that they're writing but like they've influenced a lot of things across the americas right our thoughts about um what even life writing or what biography and autobiography should do um, mm. on ideas of what socialism and independence the relationship between socialism and independence movement um as you said to spirituality and thinking about kind of feminist spiritualities, right. um politics right and there's so many things and so i kind of wanted to let each chapter kind of highlight some of the key people there they're not the only ones but they were the ones that i chose because I felt like they were doing really interesting stuff, um, both in like so many different fields, right. But also formally and like the kind of literary strategies they were making. Right. Um, and so one of the kind of major assertions that I have is that african connected writing is writing against the idealization of Messisaje, right. Um, and this is, of course, as you pointed out, Ariana Brown is mm-hmm. kind of really famous for doing that. But I kind of think of Afro-Latinidad through this lens of visibility, right? And and I'm seeing Afro-Latinx writers kind of defining mestizaje as this kind of visibility structure that dominates and in some ways kind of acts even hegemonically in some ways to render invisible and, and also sometimes hyper-visible, right, Black-Latinidad. Mm-hmm. And so kind of the five chapters that I'm looking at, Ha, like, kind of look at many different constructions of Afro Latinidad, right? That are going rather than a homogenous Afro Latinidad, but different constructions that are kind of situated in their socio historical context, right? So, you know, the hemispheric notion of Afro Latinidad that Hartro Schomburg, you know, who's often thought of as like this Harlem Renaissance bibliophile, and he was, but he was an Afro Puerto Rican one, right? And he, he did a lot of work. Um, and so, in the second chapter, too, I'm looking at like an Afro Puerto Rican socialist tradition that's really thinking about how we can read move readers from passive observers to like active participants for social and racial justice. Um, and then P.D. Thomas, as you talked about, right, like he's thinking of afro that as this like creative destruction, right? This way of kind of breaking down what we think we know about race and ethnicity and gender, right? And then um, Marcia Moreno-Vega and Lourdes Casales, who I talk about for the kind of feminist Afro-Latinx Latina spirituality, right? Because they're including these and incorporating Lakumi or Santeria philosophies mm-hmm. in their writing styles and conceptions of Afro Latinidad. And then I end with Ariana Brown and Jackie Diaz, who are using kind of folklore and mythic figures, right? Like Gaspar Yanga for Ariana Brown and La Llorona for Jakira Diaz, right? To kind of explore and embrace a queer Afro Latinx girlhood, right? A queer Afro La- Latinx girlhood as opposed to, um, you know, kind of the hetero a heterosexist one, right? Um, and then my really is also looking at an epilogue, has an epilogue, right, about Raquel Cepeda's memoir, Bird of Paradise, How I Became mm-hmm. Latina, um, as well as YouTube videos that are kind of, um, I kind of am seeing as books kind of having, I don't know, poss- possibilities and pitfalls um, because they look to commercial DNA ancestry tests to kind of construct Afro-Latinx past and futures, right? So I'm thinking about how are these, this kind of return to like, kind of to DNA and and uh, I don't know like genetic thinking about you know identity right. how that's going to impact um, ways that Afrolexics
0: might construct their identity mm-hmm. in, in the future. Interesting. Yes. Can you share with us uh, some of your favorite texts from this work? I know it's hard to, to pick I'm sure they all are your favorite in a different way.
1: (laughs) Yes. No, they're all, like you said, they're all excellent. I mean, honestly, you know, you brought up Ariana Brown and it's Mm -hmm. just like – I honestly think Ariana Brown's right. And I, the one, the text I talked about the most um, is we are owed, which was her 2021 poetry collection. And it was like the best, it was the thing that stood out to me in 2021 of like everything I read. It was mm-hmm. just so good. There's so many great poems in the book that reflect on kind of black mexican Americanness ness that um, are pushing against Angel Dua's work in ways that I think are productive and generative, um, you know, which I know is for some people is very like kind of heresy, but like I think is helpful for us to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the arc of poems that I, analyzed that i didn't actually get to include in the book was this wonderful like loteria representations of blackness and mm-hmm. thinking about how right the kind of racist depiction of blackness in loteria right aff- affects or impacts the way that black Mexican Americans might see themselves as well as like bright light skin or white Mexican Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I just really love that book. I mean, I talk more about the representation of Gaspar Yanga and like the little six-year-old Ariana Brown, because she's like, will put a child version of herself in the text as well, which I think is interesting. But at Loteria one, like one day I'm hoping to kind of, I even think I might even like think about it for my book because like it is a game, right? Loteria and thinking about Loteria as like Latin Latinx game studies, I think would be super interesting. And then the other text I really love too is Jesus Colon's work. I mean, I find it so interesting because he he calls his work sketches right which is it's so you know thinking about a sketch it's something that's kind of um, incomplete. It mm-hmm. kind of re- is around the edges. It doesn't pretend to like represent fully. It just kind of gives you the big, the, the broad strokes, right, of what something is. And so often they've been seen as kind of not literary because they're very simple, right? But their simplicity holds so much complexity. It's so there's so much in there. And the strategies he kind of used to engage the reader, right, which it was in the chapter I talk about, kind of moving from passive observation to active participation, are just really powerful. And the one example I have, because I love to teach this one in class too, is Columbia has this very short sketch called the mother, the daughter, myself, and all of us. Mm -hmm. And again, it's super short. I mean, I wouldn't even say it's 250 words. It's super short. And the whole story is kind of just this. Jesus Colon is sitting at a, like a lunch counter um, and a white woman comes in with her white daughter, tells the girl to sit next to the nice man, right? It's what she actually calls him. Mm -hmm. Jesus Colon. And Jesus Jesus Colon's Afro-Puerto Rican, right? And the little girl replies, I won't sit next to that N-word, right? And then you're like, oh, my God, like, that's horrific. Right. And then Cologne says, like, nobody said anything. And that's the end of the story. Right. Mm-hmm. You're just like, OK, like it's just like a little vignette of this moment. And I just love the sketch because it doesn't give us closure. It doesn't give us like a happy ending of like somebody talked to her and said that wasn't appropriate. And like right. the, or like I, I, you know, I realized he was a girl and a little girl. And who cares? like there's no attempt to apologize for it, to justify it. Um, no one said, but and but also it's like no one said anything about this racist act, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody, the, mo- the mother, the daughter, Cologne himself. And he also puts, and all of us, right? Because it asks you to think too, like, okay, every, like everyone lets it go unspoken. And it asks you to think, would I have said nothing too, right? Mm-hmm. Does the, and all of us, like encompass the reader, right, as right. well, right? right? <laughs> so you're just like, it's so thoughtful and provocative. And I just really love it because I just think sometimes people think when you're writing and kind of this, simple style, that means that your ideas are simple. And he just shows really the complexity and the, the kind of engagement you can get with some of this really, you know, accessible writing that he has, because underneath right. it is so much depth.
0: And with that little example that you that you gave, it also speaks to our complicity, right? Um, or mm-hmm. he's pointing to our complicity to keep quiet or silence, right, and, and issues that really we shouldn't we shouldn't keep quiet or uh, silence about. So that's great. I, I can't wait to read his work. Um, I'm gonna go through each of the writers I, I haven't read through your book <laughs> and read the works that you that you uh, mentioned there. But um, doctor. Mills, is there? I mean, aside from this big collection that is coming up, and and, um, and really like pretty soon being on book tour uh, from your about your book, uh, what else are you working on?
1: Well, you know, I have a couple different things. I'm doing a lot of kind of um, chapter, book chapters, and um, articles. Um, you know, some on like kind of game studies and thinking about like, is there such thing as a Latinx game? Like what would it mean to say that there's a game? Like we talk about Latinx literature, Latinx film, right? It's so, like, is there a game that would be that way? And kind of thinking through what that might mean. Um, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I have like in the journal Western Folklore, I should be having an article coming out um, in 2024 as well. That's about um, about like earrings and, um, and thinking about the ways in which like Guatemalan and Guatemalan Latinos and Latinas, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the term that we use for people who are kind of like not just non-Indigenous, right? They like mm-hmm. reject Indigenous background, how they try to pass along ideas of what it means to be, right? Like that to pass that Ladino or Ladina identity onwards. Um, and I'm really interested in that one because um, so often when we study stuff like earrings and material culture, we do it from this kind of folklore perspective that only focuses on Indigenous people and tries to kind of make them objects of study. Mm-hmm. And we kind of. Assume assume that Latinos or Mestizos, right? Or the kind of, you know, the, the, we just think of like, oh, modern people aren't subjects of folklore. But I think that like, it's actually really interesting. And Charles Hale talks about this too, of like, we need to study more like why we why we accept that stuff as normal or Mm non-folkloric and like what and actually study like the choices that are being made by the people in power right like the latinos and mestizos who i kind of assume that everything they do makes sense while everything else that's being done is kind of some Mm old-timey you know tradition that doesn't make sense to them (laughs) right and so I'm really excited to have that out because it's kind of um, an auto historia, theoria myself of myself as well, thinking through the relationship between I had with my mom when it came to femininity mm-hmm. and when it came to um, earrings and you know makeup and all of that stuff and thinking about like why she was so stuck on me doing those mm-hmm. things um, and what I think it meant for like what she thought femininity should be right or what how she was trying to keep me safe how she was trying to teach me lessons that um I didn't really get until when I was much older so it's a kind of I don't know I'm really excited because like a different type of style it's not it's, it's trying to speak right from my own experience and then think about how that connects to theory and how that connects to um analysis
0: right I can't wait to read that piece and I'm I'm sure um it was special to write about that, thinking about your mom. It was. Oh, my gosh.
1: It really was, especially because I had been – I had not known this, but I had been writing about this for years. Mm-hmm. Like, I would look and I had this little folder in my, in my computer that was called, like, earrings. Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, rants, like, random thoughts that I had for mm-hmm. years about earrings. And I was just like, this is a thing that's been wanting to be written for, like – A decade, you know, (laughs) easily, and it just was. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that this, like, all these thoughts and feelings I had, they're like something that could be made into. I think, I think something that will hopefully help us give some more insight into thinking about, like, because it really is like material culture, like Mm -hmm. earrings and fashion. There hasn't been that much research on it, especially about Latinas, and especially if they're not Mexican American Latinas. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, and so there has been some, right, like Mexicana fashions by Norma Cantú, and I'm forgetting the the name of the other. Um, But like there's been some but a lot of times there just hasn't been the same focus or thought beyond Mexican American Latinas. And so I'm I'm excited to kind of try to add a little bit there and try to expand
0: the way in which we think about fashion and okay. how it relates to might have to to write something about uh, Tacones, high heels or something.
1: Yes, for sure. <laughs> I mean, there's actually a book on called Tacones, but it's actually just short stories, I think, on uh-huh. um, the Tacones, but I would love, you know, for real, I mean, it would be, yeah. it's kind of amazing how little, and a lot of the stuff that is, is all by kind of white male folklorists who mm-hmm. like kind of treat it in a way that I think, right, otherizes and makes, mm-hmm. makes us seem like we're weird for thinking about things like earrings or you know like I don't know it's a it's a way that kind of feels foreign and as as opposed to being
0: like so true like true to our lives Mm -hmm. right in a certain sense Mm -hmm. Dr. Mills thank you so much for this conversation oh thank you Elena I really appreciate
1: the work you're doing with the Latina Stories podcast it was really such a pleasure um, and I hope that maybe one day I'll get to talk again about some future projects yes
0: absolutely absolutely thank you